The Bible Stands. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted in the raging storms of time. and pray together and then sing the last two verses before Ken comes to teach the adult class. I said, you will be able to decide whether or not this is worthwhile. And, and then uh, Sean said, well, it's, it's God's word, so it is worthwhile. But we're not going to be getting into... We're going to be talking about God's word. We're not going to be getting into God's word. So it's still subject to your, your opinion Again, we're, we're in this uh, theology series, and this is the first section of that, or the first module of that on bibliology. It's a good place to start because our whole concept of theology is based on the Bible, what it teaches us. It is God's very word. So this is the fourth and last section of the bibliology module. Um, Pastor, are you going to be doing theology proper starting next week? Okay, so... Pastor will be going, that's the next module, is theology, the study of God, uh, and then we'll go from there. But this is the fourth and last section of this bibliology module. Um, The first of the, from the 3,000 foot view, the first section covered the inspiration of Scripture, the point that it is God breathed and God moved men uh, to write the very words He wanted them to write while yet allowing their backgrounds and personalities to show through in the process. That was the first section. The second section covered the inerrancy of Scripture. It's a byproduct of the fact that it's inspired by God, who is perfect, that the Scriptures will be perfect. Okay, but we pointed out that that's in the original autographs, the very documents that were written by Moses, by, by Paul, by Peter, by whoever the author happened to be, those autographs are inerrant. And then the third section covered how the canon of Scripture took, took form over history. So now, this last section, we're going to consider how we got from the original autographs to the English Bibles we use today, or French people have the French Bibles, or, or whatever language they're in. How did we get there? We're talking thousands of years so how can we be sure that process was done right and we actually do have God's word in, in our possession? 
So, number, uh, Roman numeral one, and let me get the uh, handout. So, on page one, don't be looking at page two yet. Okay, the, the, the first one that doesn't have a page number at the top. Roman numeral one, remember mankind did not always have printers or copy machines. Okay, uh, which is pretty obvious. Um, so from the letter A, from the beginning of written documents until nearly 1,400 years after John completed Revelation, all copies of Scripture were produced by hand. Okay, and these handwritten copies are called manuscripts. When we use the term manuscripts, that's what they are. They're handwritten copies of the originals. Uh, so a quick question. If you were to write out, if you were given the task to write out by hand the entire Bible, do you think you could do it without making a mistake? No, I didn't, I didn't see anyone nod yes. Some just sat there, but many said, nodded no and said no. Can't write a sentence without me. <laughs> Can't sign your name without me. Okay. Well, there you go, okay? So we need a proofreader, right? Okay, so considering that perspective, that we probably couldn't, that it's not really humanly possible, let's look at three basic facts that we've kind of already covered. But, um, okay, it's amazing how papers can just vanish. There we go. This is what I want, I think. Yep, that's it. Okay. Um, three, three basic. Yeah, um, yeah. Roman uh, number one there. Uh, so the the facts we want to look at is God inspired every word in the autographs. Okay, we we talked about that. So that's your first one. God inspired every word in the autographs. Number two. None of those autographs exist today. That would be kind of cool to have one, but, but we don't have them. None of those exist today. Number three, and it sounds like things are getting worse, no two existing manuscripts are identical. All contain some scribal errors. Okay, so I could get into all kinds of conversations, but we need to be efficient here with our time. Um, so, you might be saying, well, how, you know, God's word is perfect, right? That's in the original autographs. Thank you for those of you who say no. It's fair enough to raise the question and ask, how did we get there? Okay, so just uh, the, the skill of copying documents in the ancient world was equivalent to publishing what publishing is today. It was a highly valued profession. And let her be there. The, the field of they had processes they followed. They did many, had many checks and balances to be as accurate as they could be, but still as humans they would make mistakes. So let her be the field of scholarship that deals with the differences 
in Bible manuscripts is known as textual criticism. You have a blank there in your second line there is criticism. Um, and that, that sounds bad, actually. It's like, why are we being critical of the text? But what, what textual criticism actually is, well, let's see what it is. Um, By, by the way, this, it's not actually restricted just to biblical studies. It ha- deals with other documents as well. So let's, let's look at number one here. It does not deal with questions of truth. Textual criticism does not deal with questions of truth or error in the Bible, but restricts itself to questions about what was written by the author. Um, there is unfortunately a field of study, which is ironically called higher criticism, um, that involves denying the truth of the Bible. If you ever read documents and you hear the terms used of higher criticism, they generally will criticize the Bible in the sense that they don't feel this is true or that's true or only this part is true, whatever. That's, that field is called higher criticism. And in the context of that kind of discussion, what we're talking about as textual criticism is sometimes called lower criticism. Again, these terms are upside down as far as I'm concerned, but but just for your information, if you hear higher criticism, lower criticism, in the field of biblical studies, lower criticism is the good kind. You wouldn't guess that, but that's... um, Okay, again, unfortunate terms that seem backwards. Number two, what textual criticism is, is the act of comparing one text to another and making an evaluation as to which one is the most likely the original. Okay, so a a textual critic is going to be looking at multiple documents that are different, that have differences, and they're going to analyze those differences to try and come up to an evaluation and decision as to which one, what seems like the original would be. That's That's what textual criticism is about. And it's important for us to realize that, that this field did not arise to create doubts about the Bible, but rather in response to the awareness that various copies of an important document existed it containing differences in wording, and it was very important to come up with what the originals were. So that's what the whole field is all about. And just just as by way of background, too, this isn't in your notes, but you've probably heard this very possibly, but the most common material in the ancient world for writing documents was called papyrus. It was a very laborious process of overlapping papyrus materials to come up with a a semi-permanent document to write on. Okay, then they came up with the, uh, in around the 400s or so, 300s, 400s, they started using parchment, which was animal skins, more durable, and so forth. So those were the materials that were written on, and and most early on, they were in scrolls, right? You've heard about scrolls. We'll talk about the scrolls later. But they were very bulky, and if you were to sit in your chair in a service, and you had the scroll, and you had to turn to whatever, it was... uh, it was not like what we have today. Uh, today we have what they call a codex format, where you have the pages that you can just turn page to page, much easier to use. So 
before we go further, just suppose, I mentioned it would be cool to have one of those original autographs, but just suppose God had perfected or had preserved a perfect manuscript that exactly preserved his word. word. Would that be a good thing? Very good. Denise says it would become an idol, a thing of worship. And that's exactly right. Letter C there, you said if, if God had preserved a perfect manuscript, uh, that document would likely become an idol. Those are your blanks there. Become an idol, since humans tend to worship objects rather than God in spirit. And since we're not going to cover much scripture today, let's at least go to some. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 4. And uh, you have there in your notes verses 20 to 24. Jesus speaking to the woman there. Um, let's see here. Um, well, she said in verse 20, Our father worshipped on this mountain, and you uh, Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father, you worship what you do not know. We know that we worship what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So again, that, that's how we're supposed to, God is a spirit, he is not an object. We're not supposed to worship objects, but that is the human tendency. And his infinite wisdom did not preserve a perfect manuscript or the perfect autographs. He used other means that actually help our faith all the more, I think, as we look at it. So, number, letter one, number one there under C, instead, instead of a perfect manuscript, God saw to it that his word spread throughout the world in copies he allowed to contain slight, <laughs> that's your blank there, slight imperfections, yet having no impact on the doctrines of scripture. Okay. Then uh, next, number two, under that, these imperfections have never been an obstacle to faith for those inclined to believe, but serve as a test of true faith to separate the sheep from the goats. Let's look at that. If you still have your Bibles open, you don't have to go too far from John back to Matthew. Uh, Matthew 25. Again, this is going to be the last planned scripture. Obviously, something might come up that we might turn to, or if you guys bring up something, but Matthew 25, I have there, we'll just read what I have written down, 31 to 34. Okay, then, uh, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then look down to verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, those would be the goats, 
Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And verse 46, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We know God is, um, you know, there are those who are saved and there are those who are not, and there is a heaven and there is a hell. Um, we've talked that, about that at length in previous lessons. But this is something, again, for those who are inclined to believe, Old Testament manuscripts, some encouraging factors. Um, one is, as letter A says, copying was left to, and this is the used in one of my resources. Nowadays, it's got bad connotations, but it's, it ha- it's actually a good word, elite. It was left to an elite group with great skills who took great care in checking their work with a high view of God's word. They weren't being critical of God's word. They assumed it is true. They wanted to do their work as carefully as they could to make sure it was accurately recorded. And as time passed, scribes developed their group of people called Masoretes, Masoretes um, who, who came up with a very elaborate system of checks to, to make things uh, as accurate as they possibly could. Then letter B, which is really probably the biggest encouragement in this regard, is Christ and his apostles often quoted the Old Testament using the Greek translation of it, known as the Septuagint, as trustworthy. Okay, they did not question the authority or the accuracy or the truth of the Old Testament as they quoted it. They used it authoritatively and believed it was authoritative. Showing nearly an identical match to documents written 1,000 years later. So what happened here with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were, um, what did I have Okay, I did not put a date there. I had one resource that said it was in late, like, 46, 47. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and all of the findings from that collection date back to between 200 B.C. and and A.D. 100. And one of the most impressive manuscripts uh, that they found was that of the Isaiah Scroll, which dated back to 100 B.C., which is about a 1,000 years before any Hebrew manuscript previously known. So it, it, it was a huge, probably the, the biggest archaeological find of history. And, uh, oh, by the way, the reason there was such a huge gap in this book here, Survey of Bible Doctrine, that Pastor Matt said you can, you can have if you don't have it yet, by Charles Ryrie, he wrote this, he said, the lack of older manuscripts is due to the fact that the Jews had an almost superstitious veneration for the text, which impelled them to bury copies that had become too old for use. So it's like if they started getting questionable or, you know, tattered or whatever, they would bury them and keep the newer copies. So if you bury them in time, it's going to erode. It won't be found. So that could be a reason why there was such a gap there. It's, it's not that they... They didn't, they didn't have the museums and keep them preserved necessarily. They say, oh, this is old. It's not worth using. Let's get rid of it. Um, okay, so, again, comparing the modern text to the, these finds of the um, Dead Sea Scrolls showed them to be nearly identical. And uh, 
one author said, this forever shattered the view of liberal scholars that the original text of the Old Testament was hopelessly lost. It obviously wasn't. It was amazingly preserved. Despite human error, with care, God preserved it. Through a seemingly very physical, very uh, process on the earthly plane, he, it was truly a miraculous process that God preserved his word when you look back at it, right? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a, I'm not going to really talk about it here, and you guys probably can't see it, but you have the perfect originals, then you have imperfect copies, and then you have different families, Babylon, Palestine, Egypt, and other, and then you have what they call the standardized text, where they went and they studied all these and came up with a standardized text, and then the Masoretic text that Pastor Matt's talking about developed from that standard text. So again, it can't be called inerrant because it's based on errant God. Yep, and he, again, if he is God, he will have control. Even, Absolutely. even as he's control over this whole world, despite the sinful men, he still even works through evil to perform his purposes. Even through the mistakes of men in copying manuscripts, he still controls the preservation of his word. And that, that's where ultimately our faith needs to be in. Uh, okay, second page. Uh, accuracy of the New Testament uh, manuscripts. I just have NT for short because I'm going to use it a few more times. There exists over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, and by the way, there are thousands of copies of early translations and uh, of the uh, Latin Vulgate, for example, and so forth, uh, some dating to within 200 years of the original, and number one under that. This sets the New Testament apart as unique in comparison to all other books. Homer's Iliad, which, by the way, was the most popular book of the Greek-speaking world, possesses only and this is from one source, you're going to see slightly different numbers, Uh, 647 is what one source had, manuscripts. So over 5,000, plus many others of different translations, compared to 600, and that is by far the most, uh, the other manuscript with, well, the other document with the most manuscripts. I mean, I think beyond that, you go down to single digits or tens or so forth. So it is unique in comparison to all our books. And then letter B, textual critics classify all New Testament manuscripts in three different ways, uh, by, by age, by geographical origin, or by relationship one with another. And the idea with that, which we're not going to get into, don't have time for it, but the idea is sameness in reading reflects in some connected way a common source. So they group them based on relationships as well. So, number one, and, and this, I'm not, this is not by way of, I don't want you to lean one way or the other. I'm just trying to make a point at the end here, which hopefully you'll get. The two most favored, and this is, are known as the majority and Alexandrian texts. Uh, the majority are sometimes called the Byzantine text as well. Letter A under that, the Alexandrian texts are older, they get closer to the originals, but are, uh, but are more geographically limited. Okay, on the other hand, the majority texts have broad 
geographical preference and cover roughly 80% of the New Testament manuscripts we have. Again, we have over 5,000, 5, and roughly 80% of those are the majority text. That's why they're called the majority text. Most of the texts we have are from that family. Number two, underneath that, historically, most textual... What I, what I mean is most of, most of them are found in the area of Egypt, northern Africa. They're, they're not found all over the place. Yeah, pastor. Textual critics have believed that the older the manuscript is, the more reliable it is. Um, okay. Okay. Um, I need to... Yeah, and the, uh, so the idea is it would seem more likely older ones to reflect the original than, than manuscripts copied a thousand years later. And the reasoning is, makes sense logically, that, that less time leaves fewer opportunities for scribal errors and so forth. Okay, that, that makes sense. However, as Minnick pointed out in his book too, it's possible, especially since they are in the minority, we think of the Alexandrian, that in spite of its early date, a manuscript might be the work of a very careless scribe or one who intentionally altered the text for one reason or another. So an early date alone does not guarantee reliability. So keep that in mind. Uh, That's why I have here. uh, That, however, cannot be the only factor considered. Okay. Okay, then number three, others argue that more important is that its wording is confirmed by the majority (laughs) of other manuscripts in our possession. So again, that's where the majority text has its strength. There's a lot more manuscripts that agree with one another in that family. So let's see, all that said... Letter number three, others argue on the other side of the fence that, that more, I'm sorry, I just read that. So number three, however, so which one's the best one? And by the way, just being up front, I think amongst us here in the congregation, we either have the King James, the New King James, some have the New American Standard, some have the ESV possibly, but the King James and New King James are based more on the majority text, okay, whereas the New American Standard and the ESV are based more on the Alexandrian text. So the question comes to be, number, number four, the most important question, just how different are the majority and Alexandrian texts from one another? Okay, let me read something here. Um, Minnick points out that the, the, there are two authors, the people who made, um, how do we put this, yeah, those who really brought the Alexandrian text into the public's attention were two Church of England clergymen. One was named Brooke Foss Westcott, and the other one was Fenton John Anthony Hort. Okay, so Westcott and Hort. And in 1881, after doing 28 years of careful textual criticism, they published a Greek New Testament that gave primary, though not exclusive, precedence to the older Alexandrian readings when there were variants between the Alexandrian majority text. And uh, Minnick pointed out that some have vilified, vilified these men's intentions, but he, he as a pastor said, it's amazing to him 
as a preacher of God's word who must rely on the findings of textual critics that is that Westcott and Hort themselves believe there is actually very little difference between the two major family of man, man, families of manuscripts. And what he, uh, to quote them, in their introduction to the Greek New Testament they produced, they said, and this is just kind of the bottom line, the amount of what we can be in any sense called substantial variation is but a small fraction of the whole remaining variation and can hardly, hardly form more than a thousandth part of the entire text. So that's the blank in your letter A. They said any substantial variation is less than a thousandth part of the entire text. And Minnick made a very interesting analogy. He said, to put this into perspective... He was looking at his copy of the Greek New Testament, and the last page was numbered 895. He said, if you were to take all of these differences, combine them into one place, it would occupy less than one page of his entire New Testament. Okay, so that's encouraging, I think. But look at B. Doesn't even a single letter of God's word matter? Doesn't even a single letter of God's word matter? Yes. The answer is yes. But we can be encouraged, and as Minnick pointed out, the fact that available to, to uh, I don't have one. I don't know if Pastor Matt does, actually, but he, he talked about, he said he's got a, a number of a technical editions of the Greek New Testament. And in there, they include, your blank is include, the very readings which are in question. In other words, if there's a difference, it will list the differences, it will say what manuscripts this one's in, what this one's in, where it's used, and so forth. So a pastor, I haven't done it, I don't have that book, but, but it's a, the data is available in any good technical volume of the Greek New Testament nowadays that shows these variations. The data is there for you to carefully look at the differences and to decide as best as we can what the truth is. But again, the, there's, uh, we're out of time, but I've got to do this. I'm just going to read a part of this. You'll get the idea. So here's an illustration that hopefully we can all appreciate. It is as though an engineer were attempting to fix the exact line of some ancient road. The common traditional uh, tradition points to an existing road Uh, I'm sorry, the common tradition points to an existing road as being the same. Some attempts to verify its site by the data given by ancient mathematicians and geographers show that the ancient track probably varied a foot or two here and there. This discovery greatly excites the engineer's curiosity. He ransacks the ancient writers and finds a great many other data. These, upon the severest application, show a multitude of other points where the modern road probably varied a minute space from the original. But they all concur in greatly increasing the evidence that the ancient track was, with these minute exceptions, just where it now is. And even if all the variation of sight were introduced, the road would still lie on the same bed substantially. I thought that was, that was helpful for me to see that, yeah, there might be minute differences, but the course is still there. 
and they don't change the truth of Scripture. Okay? That's it. That's the bibliog- bibliology module. Maybe in closing, I'll ask you to read one verse, Ken. Okay. Or you can read it. 1 Peter one twenty five. Oops, oops, missed it. 1 Peter 1, I'm there. I just need to get to verse 25. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. I think Shane pointed that out earlier too. Okay, next week, theology. Thank you, Pastor Matt.